0: Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com. Our scripture reading for today uh, comes from the book of Hebrews and the book of Leviticus. We're actually going to begin in the book of Leviticus. I'm going to read Leviticus 16, verse 32 through 34, and then Hebrews 9, verse 11 through 15. Leviticus 16, 32 through 34. And then also Hebrews nine eleven through 15. Of course, we believe that these words are written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And therefore, they come to us today with authority, the same kind of authority as if Jesus himself were teaching. And so let's hear together the word of Christ from Leviticus 16. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement. Wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priest and all the people of the assembly, and this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once a year because of all their sins. In Hebrews nine, eleven through fifteen. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and of calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of the heifer sanctify for the purification of sin, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you were with us last week, we started a sermon series uh, that we're calling Come Now, Long-Expected Jesus. And one of the things that we said is that the Old Testament is pregnant. If you read through the Old Testament, it is longing for some resolution, it is calling out for some answers. Last week, if you were with us, we talked about the long-expected prophet. And, and we said, if you look through the Old Testament, the, the Old Testament is crying out for a final word, for for a word that can be counted on from the Lord, for the true prophet. This week, we want to look at another thing that the Old Testament is calling for, this this idea of a priest, this desire for the true priest that could come and make atonement for the people. And And we said last week, if you were here, this is the amazing thing about Christmas time is what we believe as Christians is that Jesus has come to answer those questions. Jesus has come to bring that resolution to the tension of the Old Testament. Jesus has come to be the the answer to the things that the Old Testament is calling for. Now this idea of priesthood, it's a big idea throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament. This idea of a mediator, this idea of One who offers sacrifices for the sins of others. Now, in the beginning of the Bible, people would bring sacrifices for their own sins to God. Think of the story of Cain and Abel, or Noah brought sacrifices before God. Abraham would bring his own sacrifices. But this idea of a priesthood, a mediator, one who would bring a sacrifice on behalf of another, begins to develop with this Old Testament character that's very mysterious named Melchizedek. And obviously it fully develops... After Moses has led the people out of Egypt, his own tribe, the the tribe of Moses and Aaron, the the Levite people, would would serve as priests. They would serve as the mediator for all of the people of Israel. As I said last week, just just to kind of clarify a couple of terms, when we think about the offices of Christ, kings, when rightly understood, were federal heads. They were the head of the people who represented the people to the outside world and who on God's behalf ruled over the people. Prophets were people who mediated on behalf of God, the people who spoke God's words to the people, who spoke on God's behalf to the people. And priests were the opposite, if you will. Priests were people who spoke for the people to God. They mediated on behalf of the people before God. Now this idea of having a priest, this idea of having a mediator, again is central in the Old Testament, you could argue that the very centerpiece, the anchor of Old Testament life, of Hebrew life, was the temple, was the place where the priests did their work, where they offered sacrifices. You could argue that this idea of priesthood is kind of the central theme of the Old Testament. It's a huge biblical idea and an idea that I hope we're all thinking about today, that we need to be thinking about today. But why? This brings me to the first point, and that is our need for a priest. Our need for a priest. I was having lunch this week with a friend of mine who's kind of seeking out Christianity, is considering Christianity, is looking for truth. And and we talked about uh, this kind of famous C.S. Lewis quote. Um, We were talking about just just our need for uh, some sort of anchor of truth, similar to what we talked about last week if you were here. The quote goes like this. This is from C.S. Lewis. He's, he's speaking from when he wasn't a believer. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I gotten this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. You see the argument there? See, a lot of people say, well, like, how could there be God? I mean, look at the world. It's so evil. But Lewis is going a step further back and he says, well, on what ground are you calling the world evil? On what ground are you saying that this is good or that this is right or that this is wrong? There, there, there has to be some sort of straight line in order for you to understand that the line is crooked. He says, what was I comparing this universe with when I called it And again, this goes along with what we talked about last week, our need for a prophet. You have to have in your life, whether you know it or not, you have to have some sort of anchor of truth. And obviously that, that anchor of truth becomes useful for you when you can know what the anchor of truth is. Where it's not just some idea out there that there is truth somewhere, but when that truth has actually been made known to you. When you can receive that truth, when you can align your life with that anchor of truth, when you have seen, if you will, what a straight line looks like. Now, here's the problem with that, though. If there is an anchor of truth, and if that anchor of truth has revealed itself, if we know what a straight line looks like, well, then all of a sudden, you're accountable to something. There is is something out there that you find yourself accountable to if, if God has made himself known. I've given this illustration in our systematic theology class, but let's say I put a sign up that said, no coffee in the auditorium, I think we have the slide up here, no coffee in the auditorium. Okay. Now, some of y'all have coffee, see a cup right there, see one right there, that's like you brought that one from home. Um, so a lot of you have coffee. So okay, if, if I put this sign up, then you would, oh, Derek Bong's drinking some right now after I just put the sign up. but. Uh, If I put this this sign up, all of a sudden, the line has been revealed, if you will. And you have to to choose what you're going to do with this. So there's there's five different possibilities. The the first possibility is you can just obey the sign, right? You can just say, okay, well, no coffee in the auditorium, okay, I'll throw my coffee away, I'll get rid of my coffee. The second possibility, though, is that you blatantly disobey the sign, right? You just say, I don't care what the sign says. I love coffee, and if I want to drink my coffee in the auditorium, I'm going to drink my coffee in the auditorium. The third thing that you do, though, is you might hide from the sign, right? You might know that the sign is there, but you might kind of hide your coffee cup, right? When everybody bows to pray, you take a quick sip, then you hide it again. (laughs) So that's something people do, right? There's accountability out there, but you say, I can kind of get around this. I'll... I'll, I'll, I'll put on one face when everybody's looking at another face when everybody's kind of not looking. There's a fourth thing you can do, then you could change the sign, right? You could say the sign doesn't really say no coffee in the auditorium. In fact, it actually says coffee in the auditorium, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm doing what the sign says. Or the fourth thing you could do, obviously, is just to get rid of the sign altogether. You could just say there, there is no sign, right? That was a sign that ancient people put up to try to guide them. But of course, we've gone beyond coffee signs. Now, we know more. We know better. We we can determine for ourselves what we should do or not do with our coffee. Again, I've used this illustration uh, before in my systematic theology class, but this is exactly what people do with the Lord, with the revelation of God. If God has spoken, if God has made himself known, then you have one of five options. You can either obey his word, right? You can can say, look, there's a God, he has spoken, he's made himself known, I better obey. You can blatantly disobey, right? You can do that. You could say, I know there's a God, I know what his word says, and I don't care, I'm going to do what I want. Now, most people don't have the nerve to do that for too long, right? Eventually, you lose your nerve. Eventually, you say, okay, <laughs> I probably better not do this. And so most people do one of the other three. The, the third, they hide from God's word. They're, we call this hypocrisy, right? Where around one group of people, you act like you're obeying the word of God, but when those people aren't around, you just do whatever you want, right? You just follow your heart. You follow your passions. Another thing that people do with God's word is they change the word of God, right? Right? They say, I don't know that the word of God really says this or really does that. In fact, this is Satan's old trick, right? I mean, in the Garden of Eden, he went to Eve and he said, did God really say that? Maybe we're interpreting it wrong. Maybe you should think about it this way, Eve. Or, of course, the final thing that people do, they say there is no God. Again, I fully believe that, that most people that deny the existence of God do so more so do more so on the basis of desire than they ever do on the basis of logic or reason right? It's not that it's reasonable or logical if just to Lewis's point there has to be a line somewhere there has to be an anchor of truth somewhere. they do more so because they don't like what that line or that anchor might tell them And this is old this is not new. even the Bible says the fool says in his heart there is no God. You see our problem is, even though we may believe in God. We may believe that God has word. We may be in the first category. We may be like, you know what? I want to obey. (laughs) I believe there's a God. I want to obey the Lord. We know that we don't. We don't obey. We don't align with his will for our life. We we do follow our own passions. We, at some point, are guilty of all of these things, right? We're, We're oftentimes hypocritical. We're oftentimes guilty of questioning what God's word might say we're oftentimes guilty of just trying to remove god from our lives you know i've used this illustration before here and i I often use it in conversations with other people but the illustration that i've used before if i could take everything that you've ever thought everything you've ever done all your righteousness but all your unrighteousness all of your intentions everything that's ever gone through your mind if i could put it up on this screen right now to say you know what i'm going to prove that you're a good person by putting everything that you've ever done on this screen who would take me up on that opportunity? And nobody would. In fact, when I've said that to people over coffee or conversation, they always even kind of laugh, like, well, I wouldn't do that. (laughs) Of course you wouldn't want to see that. Of course I wouldn't do that. Almost like you've got me, okay? I admit, I'm I'm a sinner. I'm in trouble. And, And I just want to say, this is why you need a priest. This is why you and I both need A priest, without a priest, when you face the holiness of God, it will either crush you, and you'll resent God, or you will try to change God. As one preacher said, you'll you'll neuter God. You'll, You'll try to strip God of all of his authority. You'll try to make God more palatable. Without a priest, you'll either find yourself resenting God because he's just too hard, he's just too holy, or you'll find yourself changing God, neutering God, trying to make him a little more palatable. You know, the reformation of the church, it was 500 years ago, really began when the reformer Martin Luther got a glimpse of the holiness of God. He got a glimpse of the glory of God. If you've never been to Erfurt, Germany, and you have an opportunity, I really encourage you to go there. It's It's a beautiful little medieval town. If you ever get a chance to go, go to Erfurt. It's where Luther went to college. And Luther was going to college and doing, I guess, kind of normal college things. And one day, he got caught in a thunderstorm. And when he got caught in that thunderstorm, maybe for the first time in his life, he had this realization that I am small and God is great. I am little and God is big. And so he cried out to God and he said, look, God, if you will save me, I'll commit my life to a monastic life. I'll I'll go to the monastery. And that's what Luther did. God saved him. He went to an Augustinian monastery there in Erfurt. And uh, Paige actually got to go to this monastery a couple years ago. And the conditions of the monastic life were hard. But Luther made his conditions even harder. He fasted more than anybody else. He prayed more than anybody else. He worked harder than anybody else. He he refused comfort more than anybody else. In fact. This is something that just was so, they, they showed us where they slept. There was these stone floors. They didn't have beds. They would sleep on the stone floor. But at least most of the monks got a blanket. But Luther, trying to show how pious he was, refused the blanket. And we thinking, man, if you ever slept on a stone floor in Germany in the winter without a blanket, that's a hard life. But despite all this, despite all that Luther was doing, in fact, he he said in his autobiography, if someone could be saved by their monkery, it was me. He was the best monk. In spite of all that, he went to confession more than any other monk. He would always go confess his sins. And the the sins that he confessed were, you know, I I had a selfish thought towards someone. Or I found myself not thinking about the glory of God enough. And finally the priest that Luther was confessing to said to Luther, "Luther, go burn a village, you know. Go do something worth confessing and then come back and talk to me. Why are you confessing all of these little petty small things?" But here's the deal. Luther understood the holiness of God. Luther understood that the God of the cosmos is unsearchable, that his wisdom, his power, his worth, his goodness are so far above ours, are so much more glorious than ours. Yesterday in a little prayer meeting, we, uh, we prayed through Psalm 145 with one of the passages, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, his greatness is unsearchable. God is so great you can't even know how great he is. Luther started to glimpse this. And he started to realize how small he was. And so you know what he did? He gave it his best effort. He tried and he tried and he tried and he tried and he tried. But it was never enough. It was exhausting because it was never enough. Because God was so great. He was so unsearchable. He was so high. And I want you to hear this. Without a priest... If that's your perception of God, if you're starting to see God rightly, you will either resent God because there's no way that you could measure up to a relationship with him or you'll neuter God. You'll do what Martin Luther's priest did. You'll say, this is not that big of a deal. God's not that serious. Just calm down a little bit, Martin Luther. God is cool. He's one of us. You'll start conforming God into your image instead of striving to be conformed into God's image. You see, this is why you need a priest. God is so holy that when we really begin to face him, you'll either resent him as being too hard or you'll neuter him, you'll change him to make him more like you. And you might say, well, what does a priest do? (laughs) What can a priest do for me? Well, in the Old Testament, we read about these priests who are making an appeal to God through sacrifice. And of course this would happen people would realize that they had sinned against God and they would bring a sacrifice to the priest and the priest would take the sacrifice and slaughter it before the Lord as a sacrifice for their sins and this did a lot for the people it first of all it showed them it was an act of confession right it, it they were they were coming to the priest they realized they had a need of forgiveness but it was also an act they, they were seeing that the, their sin was costly they were to bring their best, the, the, the first of their flock, the, 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 the most valuable thing they had for sacrifice. So it, it showed them that sin was weighty and costly. So it was an act of confession, but it was also an, a great act of faith. You, you had to have faith to believe that the priest was going to do a good job, that the sacrifice was going to be worth something before the Lord. It was a confession of sin, and it was a great faith in God's mercy. And the priests in the Old Testament, they gave their whole life to this. In fact, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the Levites, they were given to these priestly duties. They didn't have jobs outside of the priesthood. They gave their whole life to serving as a priest for the people. And the big part of their job, the big part of their life was staying ceremonially pure, ceremonially clean. that They couldn't have sin on their own hands. How could they go before God to be a mediator before the, for the people if they themselves had all of these troubles. So it was a very hard job. They they focused on this all of the time, focusing on making an appeal on behalf of the people to God. Now, of course, sacrifices happen in the temple or in the tabernacle every day, but one time a year, one day a year, it was a very special day among the Hebrew people. you know anything about your Jewish friends, you know what I'm talking about. It's Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the day when the high priest, the only time a year he would do this, the high priest would go into the most holy place, to the holy of holies, to before the very presence of God. And he would take with him two unblemished lambs. And it was very important that these lambs were spotless, unblemished, totally pure. And he would take the first lamb, it's called the sacrificial lamb, and in the holy place, in the most holy place, he would sacrifice the lamb there before God, and then sprinkle the blood seven times on the altar but he took another lamb this lamb was called the Azazel or this you know as the scapegoat and he would take that lamb outside of the city walls of Jerusalem and with blood still on his hands from the first lamb he would place his bloody hands on the head of the sheep and then release the sheep out into the wilderness you will to die for the sins of the people and again it was very important that the lambs were spotless that they were they were unblemished that they were pure and, and there was a there was a the message in this that the purity of these lambs the sin of the people was being transferred to the lambs and the purity of the lambs was being transferred to the people and as the lamb went out into the wilderness to die it was it was saying to the people that their sin had been removed from them Their sin had been broken from them. Their sin had been separated from them. And and everybody at the end of the day of atonement could breathe a sigh of relief because the covenant with God had been restored. The sacrifice had worked. The priest had not died in the presence of God. And God was satisfied by the blood of this lamb. And the covenant continued. Year after year after year, this happened. And it communicated to the people the costliness of sin. It communicated to the people their faith in God, that God was providing a way for him to stay in their midst despite their sin. And of course, this was complex and it was grand, but it was limited. First of all, you're dealing with the blood of animals here. and You can imagine Hebrew people saying, is the blood of animals really worth our sin? It was also being conducted by a priesthood that couldn't find its way to obey. They were often corrupted. They were often uh, making an enterprise out of this whole system. And in fact, when Jesus came, that was one of his greatest uh, rebukes of the people, that, that this, this act of worship, to acknowledge God and to acknowledge our sin for God, it had just become a money-making machine. It was People were using worship, manipulating people with worship in order to make money. And get rich. And it was also limited because <laughs> the temple was limited. There was a whole time in the series of the history of Israel where there was no temple. The temple had been destroyed and the people needed it to be rebuilt. So as you read through the Old Testament, again, once again, there's a pregnancy about it. We see a priesthood, but there's a need for a better priest. And this brings us to the true to the second point which is the true priest. So the author of Hebrews, again, is explaining Jesus didn't just come to be a prophet. He didn't just come to be the anchor of truth. He didn't just come to deliver God's truth. He also came to be our priest. And so let me read our passage today again. It's, this is Hebrews 9, 11 through 14 again. It says, when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, He entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of heifer sanctified for the purification of sin, how much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve a living God. I have many friends that look at the coming of Christ and the death of Christ through kind of a new message and martyrdom narrative lens. Uh, kind of like how you would look at Martin Luther King. He, he came with a new message, a, a message of equality, and people killed him for it. Now you think of the message of Gandhi, right? He wanted independence in India, and he was this great leader for the people, and then he was assassinated. So a lot of people look at what Jesus did through the narrative lens of new message and martyr. And of course, those things are true of Christ. He came with new messages. He was ultimately killed. But if that's how you look at the coming and the work of Jesus, that's not the narrative lens that you're supposed to see this through. Primarily, the coming of Jesus is not a new message and martyr story. It is a priest and sacrifice story. This is the lens that we should be understanding this through. This is what the author of Hebrews is saying here. A new high priest has come. A greater high priest. In fact, this high priest is so great that he doesn't just enter into the tabernacle. He doesn't just enter into the temple made with hands. But Jesus alone, because he is totally righteous, because he is always ceremonially pure, because he has never stepped outside of his father's will... He can actually himself go before the very presence of God. Not just a copy of the temple made with human hands on earth. Jesus can go before God in heaven itself and make an appeal for our people. For his people. You see, a priest has come. The true priest, the the true high priest who's gone into the true people, to the true temple. Jesus was the only one worthy of serving as such a priest. And here's the deal. I want you to hear this. Jesus wasn't just the true priest. He was also the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What the cross is all about is you and me needing a priest You and me needing a mediator. You and me over and over and over again falling short of the glory of God. And God providing not only a priest. Not only a priest who because of his righteousness and because of his glory and because of his worth could go and make an appeal on your behalf before the very presence of God. But what the cross is all about is Jesus also being the lamb. The sacrificial lamb. And just as those lambs, over and over and over again, the people were to see that the sin of the people were transferred to the lamb and the purity of the lamb was transferred to the people, through faith in Christ, your sin is transferred to him. He became the Azazel. He became the lamb with blood running down his face who went outside the city for you and was able to cry out after his work on the cross, it is finished. No more is there separation between God and man. No more are your sins held against you. You can come before a holy God honestly, without hiding, without having to change him, and be welcomed in. And be called one of his people. This is the message of Jesus, our great high priest. You don't have to hide from God. You don't have to belittle God. You can actually come before the real God and have a standing before him because the righteousness of Christ has been credited to you and your sin has been credited to him. We have no, we should have no, because of our sin, we should have no standing before God. God should absolutely crush us. But in Christ, we can come before God boldly, knowing that in him we've been forgiven and loved. There's a famous old book called Pilgrim's Progress, one of the most famous books ever. You should read it if you haven't. Well, the author, a guy named John Bunyan, also wrote another book. He wrote other books, many other books, but one of the other books that he wrote was called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, and he gives his own autobiography. He talks about his own conversion. It's a frustrating book to read because he, he's like Martin Luther. He, he feels like, I can never do anything righteous enough. Uh, what if God saw me now? What if God saw me now? You ever had that moment? You know, if, if God comes, if Jesus comes back, I want to be in church, right? You know, I don't even want to be where I was last night. I want Jesus to come back on Sunday morning, not on Saturday night, right? And that's what, that's what Bunyan always thought. He's like, man, I, what, if, what, if, what if God could see me now and he could never find solace? He could never find rest. He was anxious. He was nervous. And then, and then he has this amazing scene in the book where he said, the verse hit me that my righteousness is in heaven. And I saw with my eyes, he says, I saw with my eyes, the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, was my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me he lacks righteousness. For my righteousness, my standing, my credit, was standing in front of him. I also saw that it was... Not my good frame of heart that made me righteous better, nor my bad frame of heart that made me righteous worth. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself. The same yesterday, today, and forever. And through faith in Jesus, what Bunyan is explaining here that's true of him can be true of you. That you could have a priest. That you could stand before the true and holy God who should crush you, and yet he receives you as he does his righteous son. Then Bunyan goes on and says, If this is true, now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loosed from my afflictions and my irons. My temptations also fled away, so that from that time those dreadful scriptures of the uh, uh, of God left off to trouble me, and now I also went home rejoicing for the grace and the love of God. Just as verse 15 in Hebrews 9 says, Therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Here's the deal. You need a priest. I need a priest. You need a mediator. If you try to stand before God in your sin, it will either crush you or you'll find yourself trying to change God and you'll never know the real God. What are you going to stand before God in on the last day? That's, the, that's really the question. What will stand on the last day? Will you receive this true priest who has come to save you? Who has come so you can find rest, just like Bunyan, so the chains can fall off your legs, so you can worship God, not as a perfect person. I always say, Christ covenant, if you want to join here, our only prerequisite is that you realize, I'm messed up. And I need a savior. It's the only place that you have to have a bad resume to get into, the church. You can really stand before God honestly and say, my, my hope is not in my righteousness. As we sang before, I have a, a strong and perfect plea, but it's not my righteousness. It's a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven in his hand. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can tell me to depart. One day you'll stand before the Lord, and will you stand before him in your righteousness or in the righteousness of Christ? That's the question. And Michael Bloomberg, who's running for president in in an interview not too long ago, he said this. He said, when I look in the mirror, I like what I see. He talks about his work. He said, we've probably saved millions of lives and we'll we'll probably save tens of millions more going forward. And then he says this. There aren't many people that have done that. So, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm not going to stand in line for an interview. I'm just going to walk right in. Bloomberg believes, according to this interview, that his righteousness will stand on the last day. When all is known of his heart is known, when all of his intentions are known before the infinite, all-powerful, all-wise God of the universe, he believes my righteousness will stand. Maybe you do too, but I sure don't. I know that I need a priest, and by God's grace, he has given us an unblemished, perfect priest, and sacrifice in his Son, Jesus, whose righteousness stands. It is perfect. It is whole. And in him, we can be brought near to the fullness of the very God of this universe. Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at 678-678. 951 or feel free to email Jason at jason at christcovenant.com